if you bought the S&P 500 every time mm -hmm. it entered a bear market. So anytime the stock mm -hmm. market dropped 20% from its recent highs and you bought, mm -hmm. you were always up over the next 24 months, always. And you were mm -hmm. always up huge over the next three to five years. Just always. Mm -hmm. Statistic yeah. number two, if you bought the S&P 500, even you had the worst timing possible, you bought it at its peak before every single sell-off. You bought it at the peak in February, mm -hmm. 2020. You bought it at the peak yeah. in December, um, when was the peak in 2018? I forget, it's mid 2018. You bought it at the peak mm -hmm. in, in 2007. Even if you buy the, bought the yeah. stock market at the peak every single time, if you just held on, you were up mm -hmm. dramatically over a three, five, 10 year period, going all the way back to the history mm -hmm. of, the, of the, since the dawn of the stock market in 1871. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing today? Doing well, Aaron. How about you? I'm doing great, uh, and I'm looking forward to getting into our topics in just a few moments. If this is the first time you're joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, we have a ton of things to cover today. So let's mm -hmm. dive right in. Um, right. Starting off a little bit more on the fun note, uh, some fun news broke over the weekend that Tim Cook uh, was spotted taking mm -hmm. a trip in a Rivian. Uh, and I think this validates a lot of the interesting things that Rivian is doing in the electric vehicle space. Uh, I know that you're a fan of them. I think that you mentioned once that you're on a list to, to actually get one. Can you comment on this bit of news and break down for our subscribers why you're still bullish on Rivian and as the future of one of the future in EVs? Right. So I think the news about Tim Cook riding in a Rivian at a conference is a bit overstated and overblown by the media. <laughs> Who cares if he got into a, a Rivian or a Lucid or a Tesla or a Ford pickup truck? Doesn't doesn't really mm -hmm. matter. But um, it doesn't change the fact that Rivian does appear to have a lot of operational momentum right now and the business is right sizing so not only did they report that production and manufacturing are hitting their aforementioned targets and that they're going to uh, hit 25,000 deliveries this year which is what they um, said at the beginning of the year um, but the company is also firing some people which while may sound spooky is actually a good thing because the era of grow at all cost is over interest rates are up and now we need to grow profitably now we need to grow smartly grow strategically so rivian is doing that and rivian is clearly executing on that path because again they're hitting their production targets or delivery targets so i'm really excited about operationally what's going on there right now long term big picture why am i a huge fan well they developed a really really cool car a sleek looking pickup truck and the pickup truck market is going to be massive the electric pickup truck is going to be massive rivian has a first mover advantage there with a car that is very 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 technologically sound and very high performance at a very competitive price point relative to other electric pickup trucks then they have the seven seater suv the electric suv which in my opinion is going to be the premier electric SUV seven seater in the market um, once it fully launches. I think deliveries have only partially started for the R1S. I'm really excited to see those on the road in 2023. I'm seeing a lot of R1Ts on the road here in 2022. And then what gives me confidence long term in the company beyond just their first kind of product lineup, these first two hero products, R1S and R1T, is the fact that one, they have $17 billion on the balance sheet. And when it comes to an early stage industry like electric vehicles, cash is king. Capital is everything. You need cash. You need money. You need resources to attract top talent, 
to build the best cars, to market those cars, to scale the manufacturing of those cars, to build new facilities, to build new um, distribution points or, or retail stores. You need money to do all of those things. You need money to develop R&D centers and create better technology, labs to create better technology, to secure lithium battery deals or lithium metal deals for the batteries. So there's cash is everything in the electric vehicle industry right now. And Rivian has $17 billion on the balance sheet, which gives it a bazooka in a water gun fight. <laughs> And yeah. I really like the odds of Rivian with that bazooka, not to mention they're backed by Amazon. You know, Amazon mm -hmm. is a huge investor in Rivian. Amazon has a huge order with Rivian for delivery vans. So one, that gives huge and very clear visibility to Rivian selling a lot of delivery vans because Amazon is one of the largest delivery van operators in the world. So that is a huge uh, pipeline of, for growth for Rivian. But it also means that I don't think Amazon's going to let this company go under. So even if they burn through $17 billion in cash over the next three years, there are going to be more cash infusions, especially if they do hit their production delivery targets as expected. So from that perspective, I think Rivian is very well capitalized and in a great position, a position of strength to not just develop a first mover advantage in the electric pickup truck, electric SUV market, both of which will be very large, but to actually build on that first mover advantage and create a Tesla-like brand in the large vehicle, large electric, large passenger vehicle market. <laughs> Rivian mm -hmm. is, is my top pick in that space. I really like what they're doing. Um, and yes, the Tim Cook news is is funny. It's it's good to see. Don't think it means much, but what it does say is the fact that the internet wants to write all about it means there's mm -hmm. a lot of interest in Rivian. So mm -hmm. it's really cool. Well, I think, and again, because it's Tim Cook, and we we've mentioned on this show before that Apple has these rumored plans for their own uh, EV moving forward. <clears throat> what does that say about Rivian when you have the head of a company that's designing their own EV? riding in an EV that, again, to your point, has all these benefits moving forward. Yeah, again, I, I don't think there's really much to be made of, of Tim Cook riding in, in the Rivian. Um, I, mm -hmm. Definitely, Apple is working on Apple Car, Project Titan. The information just did a huge deep dive on it. And it wasn't all glowing, right? Apple Car, mm -hmm. the development of Apple Car has been an ambitious undertaking with a lot of stumbles, a lot of roadblocks, a lot of twists and turns. It has not been a very easy path for Apple. But that's okay because mm -hmm. Apple is still going to do this. They've dumped a lot of resources into it. Apparently, the cars did have a successful test run uh, in retrofitted um, Lexuses up in Montana. So mm -hmm. they're, they are making progress on this autonomous electric vehicle. And I do expect it to be a massive product launch when it does come out, the Apple car. But it's been a, a long haul. It's been a very, 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 very tough road uh, for Apple. I think that means that when Apple comes out with the product, it's going to be pretty dang good, right? The <laughs> fact of the matter is yeah. they keep getting hit. They keep getting hit. This setback, this mm -hmm. setback, this delay, this delay. Apparently, one of the Apple cars almost hit a, um, uh, a cyclist, I believe it was, is what I read in the report. Mm -hmm. um, and if it weren't for the human driver in the car slamming the brakes, yeah, Apple presumed that the car, if alone, would have hit the cyclist that was crossing the road. Mm -hmm. So there have been a lot of setbacks there, but I think Apple is very committed to this project. I know Tim Cook is, he's been very vocal about diversifying revenues away from the iPhone and making Apple more of a conglomerate than an iPhone business, a technology mm -hmm. conglomerate. And I think Apple Car is a very important piece of that puzzle. So from that perspective, I think Apple is going to continue pushing forward with Apple Car. And I think when they do come out with the product, probably 2024, 2025, that car is going to be fantastic. It is going mm -hmm. to be top of the line. It's going to rival Tesla. It's going to rival Rivian. It's going to rival Lucid, maybe be better, probably have much better software because Apple has that software kind of DNA inside of it. Um, I bet it's autonomous. Mm -hmm. It's autonomous capabilities are going to be very, very strong. So, and I, I think the battery is going to be very impressive. So, I'm really excited for that Apple Car to launch. Um, I think it's a very understated part of the Apple growth narrative, and I think it's understated in the valuations of Tesla uh, and Lucid and Rivian and all these other. We have to, when we model those companies out, we have to take into consideration mm -hmm. 
There is going to be a new entrant in the electric vehicle market named Apple that is probably going to command mm-hmm. 5 to 10% market share at scale. So we have to make that consideration and bake that into the valuation models when we're looking at projections for these companies out to 2029, 2030, 2031. We have to understand Apple is going to take a pretty good uh, portion of the pie. Um, so mm-hmm. that's that's my two cents on the Apple car, what's going on there, um, and why I'm still <laughs> very bullish on what Apple will eventually release to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other news on the EV front. Uh, some major news. Actually, it broke this morning uh, that Walmart has agreed to buy at least uh, 4,500 vans from Canoe uh, mm-hmm. and upwards to potentially uh, 10,000. You know, yep. the stock is currently up 80% on this announcement. Uh, you know, we know you're a long-term believer uh, of this company too. Uh, so could you explain why this deal is important and it, what more can we expect from Canoe moving forward? Right. So I... They've said before, and I'll continue to say, I think Canoe has the most interesting technology in the electric vehicle game um, in terms of actual Mm -hmm. automotive design. And that is because of this company's modular skateboard platform, which the company is now calling MPP, a multipurpose platform, that Mm -hmm. essentially removes all the wasted space of the vehicle and pushes everything out to the very edge of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. So a very critical component of this design is a steer by wire um, uh, driving mechanism. So mm-hmm. even with a Tesla, right, you open up the, the front and there's no engine. But mm-hmm. even with the Tesla, when you're turning the driving wheel, the steering wheel, mm-hmm. there are gears that connect that wheel to your foot. Mm-hmm and allow the car to actually turn, right? There are gears, there are mechanisms there. Those gears and mechanisms take up space. Physical connection. Yes, what Canoe has is literally just a wire that connects the Mm -hmm. steering wheel to your foot. And so it removes all the gears that all these other cars, even electric cars have. And in doing so, Mm -hmm. it allows the driver's seat to get pushed all the way to the front of the car there are no there's no wasted space on the sides of the back so the seats there can get pushed all the way to the back the trunk can get pushed all the way to the back so all of a sudden this car has maximized internal space for the same square footage of a platform and that is an Mm -hmm. especially interesting value proposition for one large families and that's why they have the lifestyle vehicle i mean if you have Mm -hmm. three four kids they're all playing sports they all have backpacks they're all going to school they all have books this sort of car allows you to fit all of that inventory if you will into a single Mm -hmm. car that is not going to eat up your entire garage it's going to take up the same space as a as a mazda cx5 or something like that right so it's going to take up the same amount of space in your garage yet you can fit way more into it so it's a really interesting value prop for big families it's a really interesting value prop for delivery vans and that's the deal we saw with walmart today right because imagine Mm -hmm. you know walmart has to store all these vans you know, at their distribution centers. So they take up physical space. They also, every time you drive that van from distribution center to retail store, that's gas mileage or an electric car, it's still wear and tear, right? That still costs money. Mm -hmm. Charging an electric car still costs money. So there's still, you know, fuel costs, charging costs, maintenance costs that go with each trip from retail store to distribution center and back. In that sense, what Walmart wants to do is minimize the amount of trips they have to take with those cars so those cars last longer, so charging costs are lower. Canoe's mm-hmm. vehicle allows them to do that by having the same square footage of platform space, maximizing the internal mm-hmm. space of that vehicle, allows Walmart to put more packages in per vehicle, allowing more packages to be transported per trip with a canoe delivery van than with, say, even a Rivian delivery van. So that's a really mm-hmm. interesting value prop, and that's why the Walmart partnership makes a lot of sense to us. Then the third interesting value prop of the canoe technology platform is or the third interesting sort of market that it could be uh, attacking, pickup trucks. Um, Mm -hmm. When you think about a pickup truck, you want the pickup truck to have a lot of carry space. You want the Mm -hmm. bed of the truck to be able to carry a lot of things. That's why you get the pickup truck. But normally, you want a bigger bed, you get a bigger truck. 
And that's just kind of how it goes. Truck size and bed size are kind of correlated. Bigger truck, bigger bed. What would be really awesome Mm -hmm. is a truck that didn't have to get bigger, but still had a massive bed. You know, kind of maximizing the Mm -hmm. truck bed to truck size ratio. And Canoe's Mm -hmm. modular platform allows the creation of a truck that maximizes that ratio. And so I think it's a truck that's going to be really, really attractive to construction workers, contractors, anybody that currently uses a pickup truck is going to be very interested in the canoe pickup truck because it maximizes that bed space without having to get this ginormous truck. Um, and so I think that that is a really the, – the platform here is multi-purpose, MPP. It has multi-purpose use cases, and I think in each one of those unique, maybe somewhat niche use cases, there are high value adds. And so I think canoes, mm-hmm. as long as they can bridge to manufacturing, so long as they can, you know, right now the issue of the stock and the company is liquidity. They okay. essentially, are, their quarterly burn rate is basically equal to their cash balance. So bankruptcy mm-hmm. is a very real concern there. The company's plan is to get to manufacturing, prove that they can manufacture these vehicles, prove that they do have a very bright future, raise more capital non-dilutively to shareholders, use that capital mm-hmm. to then bridge them to cash flow positive. The Walmart partnership is a huge step in that direction because when you have to think about who's going to give this company non-dilutive financing – Well, you Mm -hmm. need to have confidence that there is an order book that if they do bridge to manufacturing, that there's going to be a lot of demand for it. The Walmart partnership is maybe the biggest demand signal that a potential investor or um, any any sort of capital markets would want to see. And so I really Mm -hmm. believe this Walmart deal is a game changer for Canoe stock. I think it almost ensures they are definitely going to be able to raise non-dilutive financing over the next six months and that they're going to live to see Mm -hmm. another day. And that as a result of living to see another day, they're going to sell a lot of Canoe vehicles, whether it be the lifestyle vehicle, the delivery van or the pickup truck over the next five to 10 years. I am, as a result of this deal, more confident in Canoe stock than I've ever been. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, continuing kind of the conversation of, uh, you know, alternative energy, I want to kind of segue into uh, something that we're kind of seeing in Texas right now. Um, it right. looks like they're having, you know, some summertime grid issues. Um, and ERCOT, the state's power grid operator, has asked Texans uh, to turn up their thermostats and postpone running major appliances between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Um, again, this is step one of a plan that if and if this is unsuccessful, step two is going to follow with rolling blackouts. Um, you know, power grids, they got to uh, keep supply and demand in balance at all times. Uh, and due to low daytime winds and high summer heat, the grid is struggling to keep up. Okay. And I think this is a great example of where, you know, energy storage solutions, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. could really shine. Um, yep. Can you explain some of the different energy storage solutions that exist or are being developed today and how they address this and uh, other problems of the future that we can encounter when it comes to uh, energy storage? Right. So the grid needs to be modernized. The energy grid needs to be modernized. It needs to be reimagined. It needs to be reconstructed for a modern society. Um, the rolling blackout, I live in California. Uh, we've had rolling mm-hmm. blackouts before. Um, it's not uncommon here. It's not uncommon in Texas. It's not uncommon in a lot of places where energy usage can be high, uh, whether because of the weather conditions or the amount of people in a certain area. Uh, the grid is just not sustainable. Um, and it needs to become mm-hmm. sustainable. The way we do that is through decarbonization. We produce a lot of solar power, we produce a lot of wind power, and we pump that to all the homes, all the buildings, all the offices, all the properties in, in a certain area. The problem therein, of course, as everybody knows, with decarbonization and with clean energy technologies is they're intermittent. They don't last forever. Um, and the wind mm-hmm. doesn't shine every day. The sun or the sun doesn't shine every day. The wind doesn't blow every day. So we need to back up that energy with energy storage technologies. So that's why we mm-hmm. think that energy storage technologies are going to be a very critical component of this whole decarbonization movement. And as we go towards clean energies, uh, it's going to be solar panels, it's going to be wind turbines, it's going to be hydrogen electrolyzers, and it's going to be energy storage systems. Now, the really exciting thing about energy storage systems is that at the end of 2020, there are only like 25 gigawatt hours of energy storage systems installed globally. And that represents mm-hmm. less than 1% of all clean energy production capacity. So okay. we're saying that in order for the grid to be truly 
decarbonize in order for the world mm-hmm. to truly be run by clean energy you need a lot of energy storage most experts say that in order to have this sustainable clean energy world we need maybe 30 35% of all clean energy production to be backed by energy storage systems today we're at less than mm-hmm. 1% So there are two growth vectors for the energy storage category. One is that share expansion from less than 1% to 30% plus of clean energy being backed by energy storage systems. The second growth vector is that that whole pie is growing. The clean energy pie is growing. So you have these two growth vectors working together that are going to power tremendous growth in the energy storage industry over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, even 30 plus years. And our modeling suggests actually that the energy storage system uh, industry can grow from what was about 25 gigawatt hours at the end of 2020 to about 800 gigawatt Mm -hmm. hours by 2030. And Bloomberg New Energy Finance actually agrees with that. They're calling for 800 gigawatt hours of energy storage uh, installed capacity by 2030. So that means this is an industry that is set to grow 30-fold in the 2020s, 30-fold. Mm-hmm. So this is we're talking huge growth with energy storage. So that's kind of the backdrop for why we really like energy storage systems. Now, when you get into the energy storage category, you have to understand that there are different technologies, different ways to store energy. Most of them are through mm-hmm. batteries. Some of them are through like gravity-based solutions. But um, on the battery mm-hmm. front, you have kind of three major uh, options. The first mm-hmm. are lithium-ion batteries. And lithium-ion batteries, mm-hmm. we're talking just the stuff that's in electric vehicles, the stuff that's in your iPhone, the stuff that powers electronics today. So the reason mm-hmm. we would do that is because the science around lithium-ion batteries is very well understood. Uh, we know how to make mm-hmm. them. They're benefiting from economies of scale, so they're getting pretty cheap. Um, and they're exceptionally mm-hmm. energy-dense. So there's, there are a lot of pluses to lithium-ion batteries as an energy storage solution. Now, the downsides of lithium-ion batteries uh, at, for ESS are that, one, they don't last very long. Their mm-hmm. ideal time is four hours of storage. They can, with improved science, get up to 10 hours of storage. Maybe they can go to 10 to 15, but that seems unlikely. It looks what, looks, what is going to be most likely is that lithium-ion uh, battery energy storage systems can only store energy effectively up to 10 hours, which works Mm -hmm. in a lot of scenarios, but it doesn't work when the sun doesn't shine for several days in a row or the wind doesn't blow for several days in a row or there's some natural disaster and and we really can't access any energy for a certain amount of time beyond 10 hours. So that 10 hour storage works in most use cases, but not in all use cases. So that's why there's been other um, sciences, uh, other chemistries deployed to address the energy storage problem. Some of the other ones include iron flow batteries, which are really interesting. Mm -hmm. So lithium ion batteries are all about condensing the battery and making it as small as possible, as compact as possible. Iron flow batteries Mm -hmm. actually kind of, they decouple the cathode and the anode and they, in, in so doing, they decouple the power and the charge. And I, let me, mm-hmm. I actually have a cool picture to show you about how current yeah, yeah. flow batteries work. So let me pull that up for you real quick. Like, do, 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 do. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, we love we love the charts. We love the pictures. It helps everything. Good, 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 good. All right, let's do a little screen sharing here, shall we? Mm-hmm. Where's my screen share button? Screen share. Okay, so these are, can you see it, Aaron? Yep, I can see it. All right, so these these are iron flow batteries, and they're really interesting. So you can see here's the anode, but it's actually a liquid, uh, Mm -hmm. an analyte tank, and here's the catholite tank. So they separate the two. And Mm -hmm. why that's really interesting is because it decouples the power and energy of the system, right? Mm -hmm. So lithium-ion batteries, 
they're all about being small. Mm-hmm. And so the electrolyte, um, we want to condense the electrolyte between the cathode and the anode. But um, iron flow batteries, instead of just kind of slapping the electrolyte between the cathode and the anode, mm-hmm. they separate out the electrolyte. As you can see here, that's the separation mm-hmm. happening. Okay. They separate out the electrolyte into separate tanks of water. Okay. Now, in doing that, what happens is iron flow batteries, they decouple the, the power and the energy of the battery. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is you can make these very economically scalable. You can increase the power without increasing the energy. You can increase energy without increasing the power. Whereas with lithium-ion battery, because they're together, if you want to have a battery that has more power, you need more energy and you make the battery bigger. That's mm-hmm. not the case here. Got so it. that makes them a very interesting solution for uh, energy storage systems. Now, mm-hmm. the science here is much less well understood mm-hmm. than it is with other um, with lithium ion batteries, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are there's a lot of progress being made here. There's a lot of potential. Um, early results are very promising. So I think that iron flow batteries have a niche to fill in that sort of 10 plus hours of storage um, market. Mm-hmm. Another one that people are working on are metal air batteries, and mm-hmm. those essentially use uh, the oxidation of rust. And it's not, it's the most promising, yet the most underdeveloped today. And so mm-hmm. I don't think it's worth really talking about here and now. Maybe in five sure. years it'll be worth talking about, but right now I think it's all about lithium ion and iron flow batteries. There are also other types of energy storage systems out there, gravity-based ones, that basically you build giant cranes that lower and drop blocks mm-hmm. uh, or lower and raise blocks to, to store and use energy. They use mm-hmm. mine shafts. So those are interesting, but I think economically don't make much sense. So mm-hmm. when it comes to the energy storage system, I see this market growing by 30-fold over the next several years Mm -hmm. and in that market i see lithium-ion batteries being the biggest growth vector powered by all energy storage needs of 10 hours or less and Mm -hmm. iron flow dominating that 10 plus hour range so that's how i see the energy storage market kind of breaking down and when i'm Mm -hmm. looking for investment opportunities in ess i'm looking for either leading lithium-ion battery energy storage players Mm -hmm. or leading iron flow uh battery energy storage players those are the two investment opportunities I'm targeting in ESS today. Now, looking even just a little further in the future, as energy storage does become uh, more for the consumer, uh, is there a scenario where energy storage just that we're the scenario that we're seeing in Texas with the grid, where we just don't ha- even have a use for the grid, where we can just have a battery, we take in the solar, it stores that energy for in a, the most efficient, best way possible, where we don't have to worry about uh, tapping into the grid ever again. Is that a scenario that you see, like, not even 30, but maybe 60 years down the line? I, entirely so. And that mm-hmm. that would be a lithium-ion um, battery energy storage system at your house. So you would have solar mm-hmm. panels on your roof. You would have a Tesla power wall or some mm-hmm. other um, at-home battery energy storage solution attached to the side of your house or in your garage. You would generate the solar power on really sunny days. You would save excess. You would use some of that that day. You would save excess in that battery energy storage wall or uh, system. And then on days where it's not that sunny, you would deploy that excess energy to your house and you would have this kind of self-sustaining energy loop, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I do think that is that is the neighborhood of the future. That is the home of the future. I think every mm-hmm. home will be out like that. Retrofitting homes to be um, energy uh, self-sustaining uh, like that is going to be very expensive and very difficult and a long mm-hmm. undertaking. So that this is not something that I see becoming ubiquity anytime soon, but rather yeah. what I do see is that new construction will mm-hmm. be made to be this, to have solar panels, to have energy storage walls, and that over time it will become ubiquity, but it, it's going mm-hmm. to take time to get to that point. Gotcha. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, and again, we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, uh, but you're, you've been seeing bullish signals for a while. Uh, and I hear that, like, again, you're seeing data that may that this rally may indeed be legit and uh, not just another bear market rally. Uh, can you walk us through uh, what you're finding right now? Yeah, sure. Um, there, there's quite a bit of data. Do some screen sharing here to mm-hmm. get it going. Uh, let's first talk about, we'll just kind of go through the list here. I kind of got them all pulled up for you. Oh, perfect. 
So let's talk about this is a, a breath crossover signal that just flashed last week. So last week was a great week for tech stocks. Obviously, we saw tech stocks rally in a pretty big way. Um, as a result of that rally, there was a very rare breadth crossover signal that happened in the market, wherein mm-hmm. we went from the percentage of NASDAQ stocks trading above their 200-day moving average went from under 20% to above 20%. That is a bullish breadth crossover signal that mm-hmm. when it happens, tends to produce decent gains over the next 10 days pretty good gains over the next 20 days and over the next 60 days 100% of the time produces positive gains with an average return of 15%. So, mm-hmm. and this is based on data back to, to 2008, November 2008. Mm-hmm. So, we just got this bullish breadth crossover signal that makes me pretty confident in saying the next 60 days for tech stock should be pretty positive. So, okay. that's one of the bullish signals that I'm looking at. Another one I'm looking at is this one right here. Um, and this is the implied return potential, the different indices, SP 500, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, Russell 2000, based on consensus Wall Street analyst price targets. So what we've seen in 2022 is stock prices have plunged, but Wall Street analyst price targets have not plunged. Now, a lot mm-hmm. of people are saying, well, analysts are shooting behind the duck. Eventually, those price targets are going to get cut. Sure, 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 sure. I get all that. But it still is very important that the implied return potential on the SP 500 based on price targets is about 25%. For the Dow Jones, it's about 20-something percent. For the NASDAQ, it's about 40%. For the Russell 2000, it's about 50%. These are near record high metrics, if not record high metrics. As you can see with the S&P 500, it is near record highs. Dow, near record highs. NASDAQ, at record highs. Russell, pretty much at record highs, ex late 2018. So, This is a rare occurrence. What happened during these other spikes? What happened here? What happened here? What happened here? Well, based on a scan of the S&P 500 return potential, there have only been four other occurrences where the implied return potential um, was above 25% based on analyst price targets. Three of the four times, stocks rallied over the next 12 months. The average gain, 25% over 12 months. So Mm -hmm. this is another pretty bullish indicator. Whenever analysts are this bullish, which is very rare, it normally Mm -hmm. leads to outsized returns for stocks over the next 12 months. The analysts are not that wrong is basically what this chart is saying. So that's Mm -hmm. another pretty, you know, technically bullish indicator for the market right now. Another one here is something called the recession buy indicator. Now, what the recession buy indicator is, is it's kind of this theory that says the best time to buy stocks during a mm-hmm. recession-driven sell-off is when everyone starts to think we're in a recession. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, the market is a discounting mechanism. It thinks ahead. It thinks six to nine, 12 months ahead. It prices things in before they happen. So mm-hmm. it prices in a recession before a recession happens. And on the other side of it, it prices in a rebound before the rebound happens. So the recession buy indicator says, hey, the best time to buy stocks is about – is when everyone else realizes there is a recession. Recessions normally last 14 months. Research behind the recession buy indicator says about seven months in is when people start realizing it, so about the halfway point. So what the recession buy indicator says is, hey, buy stocks seven months into a recession. Mm -hmm. We could be seven months into a recession right now, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Q1 GDP was negative. According mm-hmm. to the Atlanta Fed, GDP now's real-time estimate of GDP in Q2, Q2 print is supposed to be negative. A recession mm-hmm. is technically defined as two quarters of negative GDP growth. Mm-hmm. Q1 yeah. was negative, Q2 is probably going to be negative. If mm-hmm. that happens, if Q2 does come in negative, then technically we started this recession in January 2022. We're in July mm-hmm. 2022, so we're seven months into this seven recession. Months. <laughs> seven yeah. months in. What this chart shows is, okay, what are the returns? If you were to buy stocks seven months Mm -hmm. into a recession, what were your returns over the next three months, six Mm -hmm. months, and 12 months? And this Mm -hmm. is on data all the way back to 1871. So we're talking 150 Mm -hmm. years worth of data. Mm -hmm. Three months, double return. Six Mm -hmm. months, double return. 12 Mm -hmm. months, double return. Basically, if you were to buy stocks seven months into a recession, your return potential over the next three, six, and 12 months was double your return potential 
during any other period of time in the mm-hmm. stock market. So this is yet another kind of technical bullish indicator showing maybe now is a time to start thinking about a pretty big rebound rally in stocks. And mm-hmm. then here's my 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 analyte. Cool. Uh, so those are some <laughs> of the. Uh, <laughs> oh, here's here's another one. Um, we've talked about this before. This is the mm-hmm. insider buy sell ratio. We've talked about rampant yeah. insider buying on the show a lot before, Aaron. Yeah. This yeah. graphs the insider buy sell ratio for tech stocks and specifically for stocks within mm-hmm. the the technology sector. We can see that it is absolutely surging right now. Mm-hmm. That yeah. and that is pretty indicative of you know that's a pretty contrarian bullish indicator. Insiders are buying, the stocks are going down. You want to align with them, so that that's another kind of bullish sign that I'm looking at. So across the mm-hmm. board, I'm seeing some pretty bullish signs that the stock market, if not at a bottom, is near to bottoming. Um, and that over the next 12 months, prices will be a lot higher. Now, a lot of people are like, well, is it going to be in three months? Is it going to be in six months? Is it going to be in two weeks? I don't know. Nobody knows. That's the market. Nobody <laughs> knows. I mean, timing that, the market that actually, Go ahead. That, that brings me to our uh, uh, relevant fan question from Rob Norman, our boy. Uh, I just want to read this to you real quick. Um, you know, every analyst, money manager on CNBC, Fox Business, et cetera, says stay far, far away from profitless tech growth stocks with three exceptions. Uh, Paul Mampilli, Kathy Woods, and you, Luke. Uh, Luke, please make your pitch as to why profitless tech is going to boom. Uh, you keep, And again, which you've already kind of done a little bit. You keep saying that uh, you're very bullish on your stocks over the next six to 12 months. Do we subtract six to nine months off of that time frame since you've been saying that uh, for that amount of time? If so, super boom over the next three months? Um, yeah, so I think that uh, that's kind of a there's many parts to that question. So. First part, everyone is saying stay away from profitless tech. Everyone was saying buy it in February 2021, mm-hmm. right? That was the worst time yeah. to buy. Don't listen to everyone. As soon as everyone starts saying yeah. something, do the exact opposite. <laughs> That's the Wall Street yeah. game. That's literally the Wall Street game. Everybody's saying stay, stay away from profitless tech, buy profitless okay. tech. Profitless tech is wiped out 80%, 90%. They're trading at valuation multiples that are consistent with the bottom of the 2002 crash, the 2000, 2001, 2002 mm-hmm. crash, one to two times sales. That's where a lot of these stocks are trading at now, the low margin ones. The high margin ones trading around five, six, seven, eight times sales. Mm-hmm. That was the bottom for the high margin software stocks back in 2002. So we are seeing valuation multiples fall to levels not seen in 20 years on the heels of the worst crash for tech stocks ever. The stocks are wiped out 80-90%. That's consistent with the decline they saw in the 2000-2001-2002 crash. If you were to zoom out and you had a time machine and you could go back to one period in time and buy tech stocks, that period in time would be 2002. Mm -hmm. On the heels of a massive 90% crash before what was two decades of compounded enormous returns. Mm -hmm. That's where we are today. We've been wiped out for 12 to 18 months on profitless tech stocks, on all tech stocks, really. Mm -hmm. They're now trading down 80%, 90%. They're now trading at valuation multiples consistent with their bottoms in 2002. And they actually have really, really, really bright growth prospects Mm -hmm. across the business. These companies are very well capitalized, run by very smart people, and disrupting very large industries with very promising technologies, very promising platforms, very high value add products and services. These are the types of stocks that are going to boom over the next 10 years. Is the bottom here? Is the bottom in three months? Is the bottom in six months? That's almost impossible to say. What I can say is that I'm very confident in the next 12 months, stock prices broadly will be Mm -hmm. higher. The stock prices on profitless tech stocks will be significantly Mm -hmm. higher. And over the next three to five years, many of the tech stocks that are the most hated stocks in the market right now will be up 5x, 6x, or 7x. Mm -hmm. That's how this market turns. That's how this market works. 
And so I think the best thing you could be doing right now is ignoring all the people on Fox Business and CNBC. I mean, Jim Cramer, for example, he was Kathy Wood's best friend in February 2021. <laughs> At the peak of the ARK ETF, when the ARK ETF was pushing 130, 140, mm-hmm. 150, when all those profitless tech stocks were flying high, up thousands of percent, Jim Cramer was calling Kathy Wood a genius. Jim Cramer, and it's all of CNBC was saying she's just this, this prophet, the next Warren Buffett, everybody was hailing her as as a the jesus of the stock market mm-hmm. and then now you know 12 months after that 16 months after that she's the worst person ever <laughs> and jim kramer hates her jim kramer says she's awful <laughs> the truth is she's neither yeah. She's neither. She's neither a profit nor awful mm-hmm. she believes in an investment strategy that got overhyped mm-hmm. and then believed in one that now is underhyped mm-hmm. and so the truth is somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. You can't listen to what all these other people are saying on CNBC, Fox Business, la da la do They were dead wrong 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. Then they're dead wrong mm-hmm. right now. And I think that's just – that's how this cycle works. As soon, and that's how I invest. As soon as I start seeing everybody kind of get on the bandwagon of one mm-hmm. thing, I like to take the opposite edge because mm-hmm. – almost guaranteed that one thing's not going to happen that's the oil trade right there for mm-hmm. you everybody got on the oil bandwagon yeah. right everybody was on it oil going 150 oil going 200 and oil pushed 120 125 and that's when we came out on this show and said short oil mm-hmm. everybody's fully loaded on that it's it, everything's priced in mm-hmm. it's gonna crash we're going into a recession oil is going to crash and guess what now we're pushing 96 95 mm-hmm. so that's that's a prime example of once everybody starts getting on the trend of a sing of a single thing, take the opposite. <laughs> the odds are in your favor that you're right. Gotcha. Um, well, kind of moving, uh, continuing the conversation with the market. Uh, the CPI numbers are set to be released Wednesday. Again, we record this on Tuesdays, so our subscribers should already have access to the print by the time this episode is released. Um, but what are your expectations here? Is there anything in particular you're looking for? Uh, CPI is expected to be cores, expected to be decelerating headlines, expected to be accelerating. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't see that. Um, I don't see headline accelerating. Commodity prices are dropping. Uh, oil is dropping. Energy prices are dropping. Um, wheat's down big. The industrial metals are down big. Copper has been getting smacked. I don't see how headline inflation accelerated month over month Mm -hmm. that's tough for me to see we'll see when the numbers come out tomorrow the white house is prepping us they came out and said they're expecting a really hot print Mm -hmm. they probably know right they probably know the number so it's probably going to be really hot so i'm probably wrong there (laughs) um it's probably going to be really hot the white house knows so i think that's what the market's bracing for the market's bracing for a really hot print that's why i see some jittery trading uh leading into the print um but i think whatever that print is you are definitely going to continue to see a deceleration in core inflation. And if oil continues to fall over, if wheat continues to fall over, food and energy continue, prices continue to, to decline, then you're going to see headline follow the path of uh, um, of core inflation mm-hmm. and start to really decelerate as well. On that note, something that I found very interesting yesterday when I was doing my research is freight prices. So the price to send goods mm-hmm. on a ship from the from China to America, mm-hmm. across Pacific Ocean. They're down about 30% since November 2021, mm-hmm. crashing. Okay. And they're crashing because in the words of an, an economist, I forget his name right now, but uh, he said the U.S. distribution system mm-hmm. is stuffed with stuff. <laughs> and that goes back to this bullet effect that we talked yeah. about. Yeah. La- was it last week or two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, Burry came out and talked, Michael Burry came out and talked about the bullet effect. Yep. People overordered. Yeah. Companies overordered. Supply chain, and, and, I mean, it's not their fault, right? They were facing supply chain shortages. Demand was robust. They needed more supply. So they're like, China, whatever you can produce, just give it to me. Here's the yeah. money. Just give it to me. I need product. I need product. I need product. I need product. Mm-hmm. Well, now China's back up and running. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, demand's falling flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, B of A credit card data, Barclays credit card data, JPM credit card data is showing that outside of uh the essentials like gas and food 
consumer spending is dropping yeah. now. So we are seeing that, that those weak consumer sentiment, consumer confidence readings we were seeing over the past few months, they're now spilling over into lower consumer spending. So consumer spending is falling flat. The ServiceNow CEO just came out and said that there has been a reshifting of business spending priorities mm-hmm. away from long-term ROI stuff to short-term ROI stuff. So that presumably means enterprise spending is, is being cut back as well. So demand across the spectrum, across the economic spectrum is falling flat meanwhile all these goods are just (laughs) flying through the door for retailers they're overstuffed Mm -hmm. that's disinflation so regardless of what that june cpi print says i am very confident in forecasting inflation to rapidly decelerate over the next several months and you're seeing that in in the treasury market Mm -hmm. right the 10-year treasury yield inflation cpi tomorrow i think it's supposed to be like 8.8 percent or something Mm -hmm. like that i think that's the that's the headline expectation the 10-year treasury is now at Mm 2.9 Inflation expectations as priced in by the bond market for the next five years are something like 2.1, I believe, Mm -hmm. most recently. The market is strongly saying these 8% plus readings, 5% plus readings, even 3% plus readings won't last very long. Mm -hmm. And that very soon, thanks to a combination of the bullwhip effect and a a recession that's probably already here Mm – you are going to see inflation rates meaningfully and rapidly decelerate from 8 9% where they are today mm-hmm. to the Fed's target of 2%, probably within 12 months. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. So I think inflation trends are going to shake out very favorably for the stock market. Well, in addition to CPI numbers, earnings season is also set to kick off later this week uh, as the banks right. get us started. Are you watching the banks closely and uh, looking more broadly with uh, these quarter, quarters earnings? What are you looking for? Yeah, so I think the banks are going to put up some bad numbers. It's, it's not a good environment for them. Economic activity is declining. Uh, long-term yields are dropping. The yield curve, 10 to inversion, uh, now minus 12 bips. Mm-hmm. So that's the steepest inversion since 07. That's just not a great environment for bank profitability. I think the banks will have some pretty bad numbers. I think earnings season is going to be pretty disappointing across the board. I think you're going to get a lot of cuts from management. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be followed by a lot of analyst uh, downward revisions. You're actually seeing analysts kind of front run this. Mm-hmm. We've noticed a spate of downgrades yesterday and today mm-hmm. heading into earnings season. Uh, with analysts saying we think consumer spending is going to impact lower consumer spending is going to impact this, lower enterprise spending is going to impact this, lie down, lie to do. So you're seeing analysts front run what they expect to be a weak earnings season. You're probably going to get that weak earnings season. You're probably going to get a lot of downgrades, and that's probably the final washout i would say for the stock market Mm -hmm. is once we get these earnings to come down once we get managements to cut their guides that kind of creates a final washout scenario upon which we can we can rally Mm -hmm. um we may not even have that washout though i think a lot of stocks are already priced for some significant earnings estimates revisions. so Mm -hmm. i think all in all i'm I'm very bullish in the next 12 months i don't know what the next month holds the earnings are a wild card (laughs) I think they'll be bad, but I don't know how the stock yeah. market will react to that. Um, but I, I am very confident in saying, given all the indicators I'm looking at, given where valuations are, given the historical analogies, given the course of inflation, that the next 12 months will be very good for the stock market. If you buy today, you will be up in 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, final stop in our market check-in uh, is China. Again, uh, we're seeing a new wave of lockdowns once again. Uh, should we be reacting to this uh, ongoing and unpredictable situation? Yeah, China, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, We just have to price in sporadic lockdowns like okay. every month they're going to be like some wave of lockdowns that last two weeks and then we'll be normal for two or three weeks mm-hmm. and then another two weeks of lockdowns it's just gonna be this on again off again on again off again on again off again but what i am noticing is that china is trying to issue containment protocols that limit demand but not production okay when they're doing these things so i'm noticing that a lot of the containment protocols being issued are all about you can't go to restaurants or Mm -hmm. you can't go to bars or you have to stay inside for this but they're not anymore the product you, you can't go to work at this 
manufacturing facility mm-hmm. or this warehouse, or we have to limit capacity at this warehouse. Those are not part of the language of lockdowns in China anymore. Okay. So when we see these lockdowns arise, mm-hmm. I think what we have to interpret is those are demand hits not supply hits. Okay. I think supply chains in China are rapidly normalizing and will continue to normalize regardless of the China COVID situation. Mm-hmm. But the demand coming out of China will oscillate with the lockdowns. And that's why oil prices are tumbling. Mm-hmm. That's why you're seeing more recession being priced in to the market, higher recession odds being priced in the market because the demand side of the equation is what's getting hit by the China lockdowns. Um, mm-hmm. And so long as that continues to happen, odds of recession go up, oil prices go down, yields go down. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the broader implication of what's going on in China and why we need to monitor it. I'm also monitoring it to the extent that production does get hit, but that's not happening yet. And I'm mm-hmm. conf- not confident that it won't because you can't be confident about anything with China. <laughs> but as of right now, the current trends suggest mm-hmm. production in China will stay pretty healthy regardless of the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, shifting gears into our crypto check-in, uh, Bitcoin rose about 10% last week, which is good. Uh, for one of its best weekly gains since October of 2021. I know you've been urging cautious Mm -hmm. optimism on this front and that a bottom may indeed be in. Uh, Any updates here with the latest uh, rise? Aaron, we just continue to consolidate around 20. Mm -hmm. I I think 20 holds. Mm -hmm. And by, again, we talked about 20. I think 17, 23 holds. Yes, you got it. You got to kind of be that plus or minus three. But I think we hold mm-hmm. there more and more data continues to suggest that we are at max pain, max capitulation. We're at levels historically consistent with bottoms on mm-hmm. a lot of on chain metrics. And for that reason, for those reasons, multiple reasons, I think we continue to hold these levels. There's a lot of talk about Bitcoin going to 10. It's possible, mm-hmm. entirely possible. Mm-hmm. But I think unlikely. I think we continue to hold. Again, though, the strategy remains chill, wait, mm-hmm. let's see what happens. Don't rush in here. You're buying cryptos for a multi-year investment. No need to buy it now. Mm-hmm. Wait until the bottom is actually forming. Mm-hmm. Wait until we have multiple months of consolidation mm-hmm. and wait until we start to U-turn. Mm-hmm. Wait for the Fed to maybe take a dovish pivot. Wait for stocks to bounce back. Mm-hmm. Wait for us to get up to 22, 23 mm-hmm. and start breaking out a little bit. Then let's put some bets on the table for Bitcoin and high quality alts. Until then, just relax. Just relax. Bitcoin's not going anywhere. <laughs> Cryptos aren't going anywhere. Okay? Yeah. They may, you know, the prices may go some places, but mm-hmm. right now the products themselves aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So relax. Let the market do its thing. Once we see signals of a breakout mm-hmm. to the upside, then let's play some bets. But for now, let's relax. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Well, that wraps up our topics, but we definitely have some fan questions this week. Uh, First question comes from Rusty Russ. Uh, Since I am unable to do any short selling, would it be the best to take shares of ETF SCO to go short on oil? Are we sure it will drop? I feel that we are indeed going down at the moment. However, I do believe we could still see some rebound to the upside in the short term. (laughs) I think I know where you're going to go with this one, but that's the question from Rusty. Yeah, I mean, with short oil, I think the call is it's going to be very volatile. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I find very interesting about the oil markets is that today, for example, um, it was reported that OPEC, the 10 nations of OPEC, the 10 core nations of OPEC, uh, missed their production quota. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were supposed to do, I think it was about 25.7 or 25.8 million barrels uh, a day of production Mm -hmm. uh, out of those 10 countries in June and ended up doing something like 24-7, 24-6. It was like 1 to 1.1 million barrels uh, a day short. Mm -hmm. So that would imply further supply constraints. Yet, despite that news, oil dropped from 102 to 96 today. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Very interesting. I think what that tells me is that if it weren't for these supply constraints – Oil will be down at 40 or 50 right now. Mm-hmm. Oil will be crushed. Mm-hmm. But those supply constraints are very real. And what that the numbers today showed me is that they're not going to go away anytime soon. So mm-hmm. oil is going to remain volatile. I think the way to trade oil is 
it's going to pop back to 105, 110, probably. I'm not for sure, but probably. Mm-hmm. When it does, buy the inverse ETF. Mm-hmm. Ride it back down to 95, 90. And then profit take a little bit. Mm-hmm. Probably going to bounce back to 102, 104. Mm-hmm. Buy the inverse ETF. Mm-hmm. Ride it down to 90, 85. Mm-hmm. Profit take a little bit. Then it's going to bounce back to 98, 100. Buy the inverse ETF. Ride it down to 80. I think what we're doing is this kind of, we're taking a step ladder down right now. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is that we're going to take two steps down, one step up, two step down, one step up, two step down, one step up. On the one step up, short. Two mm-hmm. step down, take the profit. Mm-hmm. One step up, short. Two mm-hmm. step down, take the profit. I think we're going to take that downtrend and it's going to be very volatile, which is why I'm yeah. saying take advantage of the volatility. That mm-hmm. would be my that would, that's how I would play oil if I was mm-hmm. um actively trading it right now. I would mm-hmm. buy the inverse ETFs on big spikes. And I would profit take on big drops. And that's, I would just continue to trade it all the way down because I think we're going to keep going like this on oil. But it's going to be volatile on the way down, like I said. So a lot of money to be made in the volatility. All right. Our next question comes from Danny Luong. Uh, Luke, do you have any insider information on the central bank digital currency CBDC? And do you foresee the big crypto players like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, etc. eventually be regulated and morph into the CBDC digital currency ecosystem? Also, as retail investors, where should we put our money right now to benefit this up and coming transition? Uh, OK, great, great question. Um. First, let me very clearly state I do not have any insider information of any sort on anything. <laughs> um, and if I did, I would not act on it nor share it. Um, so that's 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 my legal obligation to say that. Number two, mm. CBDC. You know, the Federal Reserve released a paper about this in January 2022. It was a 40-page document, right? Um, and that mm-hmm. was definitely a first step in what is likely going to be a very long process of creating a CBDC. So I do not think okay. that that is going to happen at any time in the foreseeable future. Um, mm-hmm. It will eventually happen, but not anytime mm-hmm. soon. In the meantime, what we likely will get is stable coin regulation. And that regulation mm-hmm. will likely revolve around making sure stable coins are adequately and appropriately collateralized. So the reason okay. Terra blew up, right, is that was a stable, an algorithmic stable coin. The reason that whole ecosystem blew up is because that stable coin was massively under collateralized. You didn't have dollar backing for the stable coin. So when everybody just started mm-hmm. to cash out and started freaking out and wanted to exchange their stable coin for dollars, there weren't enough dollars mm-hmm. to make the exchange happen. Run on the bank, boom, zero. That's bad. Mm-hmm. That happened because of a lack of regulation. Mm-hmm. I believe regulation will come in and turn these stable coin, not turn these stable coins into, but make sure these stable coins are appropriately and fully collateralized. In a stable mm-hmm. coin where you do have one-to-one backing with US dollars, that's a pretty safe situation. And so I think the mm-hmm. Federal Reserve or the government is going to make sure those situations happen more often than not. So CBDC, mm-hmm. long ways off, regulation of stable coins, probably much sooner. To Mm-hmm. And to the second part of the question, well, the major cryptos just get rolled up into uh, CBDC, be a part of the CBDC ecosystem? Probably not. I, I don't see that mm-hmm. happening. It, it seems um, it seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. But what does seem likely is or what is actually already happening is uh, there are projects being developed on top of layer ones uh, that are C- mm-hmm. that are um, stable coins. And so I think that is going to continue okay. to happen. Um, and I don't think it's I think it's going to happen independent of the uh, central bank digital currency. So, um, OK. And then what was the what was the final part of the question? I'm sorry. Remind me, Aaron. Um, as retail investors, uh, where should we put our money right now to benefit from this up and coming transition? Gotcha. OK, so where should we put our money right now? Consolidation into Bitcoin and ETH makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And okay. then consolidation into high quality altcoins. And 
out of respect for our subscribers to our paid crypto products, I can't really divulge a lot of names there. But what I what I can mm -hmm. say is what we are recommending is is a fifty percent allocation to Bitcoin and ETH, and then a fifty percent allocation to the high quality alts that we're pounding on the table about right now. That's mm -hmm. what we're saying to do in this market environment. That's what I suggest anybody to do as far as what the names of those high quality alts are. Well, you know. We have to make money too. And so that's what you got to pay for our <laughs> services um, to get the access to those names. But that, that's what we're saying right now. Mm -hmm. It's a 50-50 allocation, Bitcoin ETH, high quality alts. Stick with that mm -hmm. allocation until we see a breakout to the upside, at which point decrease allocation of Bitcoin ETH, go into more alts and ride that, that high alpha wave higher. Okay. Uh, and our last question comes from Glamour Girl. Uh, thanks, guys. Great content. Just curious to know if Luke thinks there's a possibility of a biotech bull market, as I notice a rally in XBI and IBB. Has there ever been one before? Has there ever been? A, there, there have been many biotech. Uh, I guess a biotech, a biotech rally. There, there have been many biotech, biotech bull markets, many biotech rallies, and many biotech bull markets before. And yes, I do think that those stocks could be on the verge of a pretty big breakout. Um, they are the mm -hmm. exact type of long duration assets that could hit hard by high yields. Um, that also are pretty economically independent. Well capitalized biotech companies don't care about the winds of the economy, right? They have their mm -hmm. money. They yeah. can fund their operations. They can withstand cash burn. And they're about developing a drug or a series of drugs that will eventually be commercialized and when commercialized will have economically resilient demand, meaning it's not going to ebb and flow mm -hmm. with the economy. So from mm -hmm. that perspective, these assets should perform well in a recession if yields go lower. And they're already mm -hmm. washed out. They are definitely starting to form a bottom, it looks like, and trying to break out. I think that if we do get the market melt up that I'm expecting, these these stocks will be leaders in that rally. So I think the biotech ETF is a really mm -hmm. interesting play here. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, that kind of wraps us up. Uh, great insights, as always, for our HGI investors. Uh, Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap? Um. You know what, Aaron? I think, yeah, I do actually. And it's kind of like a, a, broad, <laughs> a broad strokes, big picture thing. Sure. Yeah. During bear markets, everyone always thinks that it's never going to end or they become obsessed with timing. They do one of those two things. Mm -hmm. Most people fall into yeah. the boat to becoming obsessed with timing. When's the bottom? When's the bottom? When's the bottom? When are we going to turn around? When are mm -hmm. we going to turn around? When are we going to turn around? And the fact of the matter is timing the bottom does not matter in terms of return potential, mm -hmm. really. I mean, if you miss out on 20% because you bought 20% higher than the bottom, oh, well, you're going to make it up over the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, uh, 36 months, 48 months. There was a statistic mm -hmm. that um, I remember reading recently. Two statistics. One, mm -hmm. if you bought the S&P 500 every time mm -hmm. it entered a bear market. So anytime the stock mm -hmm. market dropped 20% from its recent highs and you bought, mm -hmm. you were always up over the next 24 months, always. And you were mm -hmm. always up huge over the next three to five years. Just always. Mm -hmm. Statistic yeah. number two. If you bought the S&P 500, even you had the worst timing possible, you bought it at its peak before <laughs> every single sell-off. You bought it at the peak in February mm -hmm. 2020. You bought it at the peak yeah. in December. Um, when was the peak in 2018? I forget. It's mid-2018. You bought it at the peak mm -hmm. in, in 2007. Even if you buy the, bought the yeah. stock market at the peak every single time, if you just held on, you were up mm -hmm. dramatically over a three, five, ten-year period, going all the way back to the history mm -hmm. of the, of the, since the dawn of the stock market in 1871. Gotcha. That those two statistics to me underscore why all you need to really do in the market is find mm -hmm. high quality companies that can mm -hmm. and well grow revenues and earnings 
by a substantial margin over the long term, buy those mm-hmm. stocks and hold them and wait. Mm-hmm. We've been in the most abnormal and unusual two years of the stock market, three years, I guess, the stock market ever. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, 2020 was crazy. We had the quickest crash and the quickest rebound in the history of the U.S. stock market. <laughs> 2021 was mm-hmm. crazier. We had a massive melt up in a lot of assets. And then 2022, we've had a massive mm-hmm. meltdown in those assets. We've been gyrating like crazy. The past three years are anomalous. They are not the norm. Mm-hmm. We're going to get past mm-hmm. this noise. It's all COVID uh, onset stuff. So we had to adjust to the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. We did some things to save the economy. Now we're paying back for those things. la di la di do. Eventually, this is all going to normalize. And when it does, the stock market's mm-hmm. going to do what it's done for hundreds of years. And that is go up and to the right, up and to the right, up and to the right. Mm-hmm. And the companies leading the rally are going to be the companies that grow earnings and revenues the fastest. That's just what happens. So I'm going to quote Warren mm-hmm. Buffett here. I'm going to quote Charlie Munger. <laughs> and say, we don't make investment decisions based on an economic trend, like the economy is going to boom mm-hmm. or the economy is going to bust. We make investment decisions based on looking at an individual company, seeing if that company mm-hmm. has the potential to grow a lot over the next several years, and look at the price of the stock. And if that calculus makes sense, we buy the stock. That's what we're doing. That's what we suggest mm-hmm. everyone else to do. Because when we do that on an individual basis, for a lot of profitless mm-hmm. tech stocks honestly for a lot of these washed up tech stocks the calculus makes a lot of sense and the upside potential is truly mm-hmm. enormous whether that upside potential is realized in a three-month window a six-month window a 12-month window impossible to say but all mm-hmm. of us should be investing for 5 10 15 20 years and if so there should mm-hmm. be no concerns right now in fact there should be an opportunity we're embracing with both arms because we're not going to see every bear market is the best best buying opportunity in history that's just that's what that's what mm-hmm. it is. This time's not yeah. different. So let's embrace the buying mm-hmm. opportunity. Things will turn around when they do. The stocks that are leading the rally are going to be the ones that got hit the hardest on the way down. Mm-hmm. It's time to prepare for the rebound, not the recession. Well, I'm glad that you're here to help us prepare for that rebound. Uh, And we want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to follow and questions that you might have for Luke. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Bye, all.